Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Many thanks for joining us on the Journal of Biophilic Design. Today we're going to discuss how biophilic design can play a part in health equity, especially in an urban environment. And we're really thrilled to be joined by Professor Helen Chatterjee uh, today. Um, she's Professor of Biology um, at University College, College London. Her research includes biodiversity conservation and evidence in the impact of natural and cultural participation on health. Her interdisciplinary research has won a range of awards, including a special commendation from the Public Health England for Sustainable Development. She's also got an MBE in 2015 for services to higher education and culture. And, um, and she's also um, trustee for the National Centre for Creative Health which all ties in with what we're going to talk about. So um, importance of nature in our lives and also the new masters in arts and science. Helen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me, it's great to be here. Lovely. Um, well, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, Helen, uh, what you do and, um, and also how you came about doing it, that'd be great, thank you. Sure. Well, I started out, um, I am a zoologist. I came to UCL in 1996, which seems a long time ago now, to do a PhD in zoology. And that's how I, I've been um, really always focused on. Um, I've always been interested in fossils. I've always been out outdoors, interested in archaeology, paleontology. My degree was in natural environmental sciences. And from there, I just knew that I, I really wanted to work particularly around um, evolution and conservation. And, and so my PhD really tackled those big topics but from the perspective of small apes in Southeast Asia called gibbons um, and I won't give the story as to how I got interested in apes but um, <laughs> those particular apes it was because of the interest in the evolution of how we adapt to different environments which does have a, a link I think to our role with nature in the environment but because of those interests in how we're adapted to living in the environment, um, I started working on gibbons, particularly around adaptation, but that inevitably got me working around conservation um, because um, even at that time, we were already becoming really aware of how uh, fragile biodiversity and ecosystems were. And of course, that has only exacerbated in the last 20 or 30 years. Small apes, gibbons are amongst the world's rarest apes. The world's rarest primate is in fact a gibbon, um, the Hainan gibbon, where there's less than 20 individuals, uh, 35 individuals now actually, living on the small island of Hainan off South China. And they're really a, a case study of what's happened for many, many species, not just primates, but obviously many different mammals, birds, invertebrates, insects over the past um, 50 years or more, where their habitats have been so dramatically affected and they have been so dramatically affected by things like illegal wildlife trade, that their numbers have plummeted. And that's work that I've been doing over 20 years. And, and a lot of that work really is sort of uh, um, converged with some of my other interests in how we live within our environment. Because whilst I was doing my PhD, I ended up inheriting um, a zoology museum, our Grant Museum of Zoology at UCL. Um, I was working a lot with collections and just started doing some teaching for the department using those collections when the curator left and they had no one to look after it. So I sort of by default and by accident became the curator of the museum and stayed there for about 15 years. And that really got me interested in thinking about why we have collections, particularly natural history collections. What is their function? 
Um, and obviously, if you're a zoologist or an anatomist, you're interested in comparative anatomy, that's essential for teaching. But then thinking about the wider publics, um, I started working with the hospital across the road, University College Hospital, and I've been working with them ever since, really thinking about the links between museums and health. Uh, and so that really helps sort of tie up all of my work really around thinking about we've got these amazing assets in our communities like museums, like green spaces and parks. Um, and how do they contribute to that wider ecosystem? Um, sometimes they can be very, you know, natural ecosystems like the ecosystems I work in in Southeast Asia. But we still have to think about how we link the natural world and what's in our environment with people and particularly the health of people. And so that's really what's led to a whole plethora of research in that area over the last 20 years. I guess a, a key interest in what we have in our community, the resources we have, for those people that don't have access to those resources like good green space or if we have depleted green spaces or we don't have a great museum or a library on our doorstep what are the implications of that for people's health and well-being um, and what can we do to redress that and how does that specifically link into inequalities in our society oh, that's great thank you um how would you describe your own fascination with nature and its benefits i mean you've touched on the gibbons and you touched on your zoology and and things so so how you know where did that all come from how would you describe well, it? I think I, I often think that it comes from your parents. For me, it did come from my parents. They, they were always, you know, we were always, we walked everywhere, partly yeah. because I lived with my mum and we didn't have a car. <laughs> and um, when I was with my dad, we always hiked. And I do think this is so important. If, you, if you're not introducing these things at a young age, it seems alien. The same with museums. We'd always visited museums. We had yeah. relatives in London and we would come and visit them. So we'd always go to museums. And so I always grew up loving that and have stayed, at, you know, hardened hiker ever since and just love walking um, and you know we always had dogs I still got a dog and, and that is again a really great reason and excuse to go to a green space multiple times a day um, and I think that's so important uh, for young people to have that exposure mm -hmm. so that it feels part of your everyday life um, it's it, I would always go in a green space um, and volunteer and actively go and do stuff in green spaces whenever I can. So my holidays are always nature-based. Uh, and I think, again, that comes from your very early childhood. So it's really important in early years to introduce people to the outdoors and to nature and to enjoy that. Yeah, it's true. And if you say, if you, if it comes at an early age, it's like language, isn't it? It's like a second, it's like second nature, isn't it? It's like, it's just part of you then, isn't it? It's like part of your understanding, part of your, your sphere, if, it, if you want. And you know, it's accessible, you know. Absolutely. I mean, your interdisciplinary research, you know, it, it has been award winning. And um, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about your research on biodiversity conservation and, and evidence, evidencing the impact um, of natural and cultural participation in health? Yeah, well, on the zoology side, the work that we've done with um, ape populations, small apes, gibbons that live in Southeast Asia, they're living in very, very fragile ecosystems. Some of them are very inaccessible to humans, but humans will still be living and co-located nearby them. And, and those humans have, have evolved, you know, very close relationships often with those um, particular habitats and with the organisms living in them. And so increasingly our research has been about understanding those relationships. 
um, because they, they cross fertilize each other. And lots of the people that, that we work with and talk to who live very close to nature in those particular ecosystems, they're completely codependent on, on each other. You know, they really re recognize the value of them to their own health and well-being in their general life. Um, and of course, those individuals are also very dramatically affected by the habitat changes that happen. Sometimes they're part of those changes, you know, turning natural habitats into, for example, farmland, mm -hmm. but also, um, you know, increasingly as, uh, as green spaces become urbanized in natural ecosystems, that presents challenges, particularly for very local populations. So a lot of our work in the past few years has really focused on that. So how populations who live, often indigenous populations who live very close to nature, what are the effects over a long period of time of, of having that close relationship with nature, which we um, here that are not co-located next to these pristine habitats. We don't know that because we're often brought up mostly in these towns, cities that are very distant from nature. So I think it's really about understanding that relationship with nature mm -hmm. and with those sorts of habitats. That's where a lot of our zoology research has been and particularly for us, how that's linked into their own health. So it's not just having, you know, devastating habitat losses that affects those individuals, um, at, for example, the gibbons, but it also affects the humans in a very bad way. So a lot of it is about thinking from a design point of view. So how can we um, live more harmoniously alongside those habitats, even if they are changing? So if there is farmland, how we can avoid, for example, the human wild, wildlife conflict, how mm. we can have more of a cooperation approach to thinking about, you know, living in close contact with nature. And then on the other side of it, I guess, uh, for people who don't have access to an amazing rainforest on their doorstep, <laughs> it's been really about thinking about it from what we call an asset point of view. Um, and so most of our habitats that we have access to are quite urban. I live in King's Cross, so I live in a very, very urban area. But I'm really lucky I have amazing small green spaces, which I can use. But not everybody has access to green spaces. And also not everybody, even if they have access to those sorts of spaces, will be using them for a whole range of different reasons, some of which I alluded to. If, if it's not part of your USB and you're not brought up thinking about accessing those sorts of spaces, um, then it's not part of your, your daily life. And that's what's really important. It's about having um, an active and physically and psychologically engaged in a relationship with those environments. And, and for us, our research is not just about green spaces, it's also about other community assets like museums, because that's where I started out. Um, but really anything that in your community that could be described as an asset. And often for us, those sorts of programs, activities and great things that you can do converge. So, you know, we see lots of great arts and creativity happening within nature and, and vice versa. Nature inspires lots of the sorts of programs that we work on that say are run by museums or libraries or arts or artists or art centers. Um, so for us, a lot of our research has been around that importance of having access to quality community assets that are really about thinking about those broader, what we would call social determinants of health. Um, and what we know is that for people who don't have access to these sorts of quality spaces like a museum, a local museum or library or a local quality green space, that you're automatically predetermined to have poorer health. Mm. So you more likely to have incidents of cancer and other serious illnesses like obesity and diabetes. Um, you're automatically more likely to have uh, iller health in terms of mental health. So we have so much evidence now that shows that access to quality community assets has a direct impact on health. 
and those people who live in these kind of asset depleted or very deprived areas, they um, automatically score lower on all whatever scale you look at in terms of biopsychosocial health. And therefore, they're using health and other social services way more than other individuals. So it's a no brainer because it costs more. So it costs the taxpayer more to keep those people living unhealthier and unhappier lives, which to me just seems madness. Yeah, exactly. And saying if we can get them out in nature, get them out using the, you know, the, the, the assets that are there, um, then as you say, it is a no brainer. Um, I mean, a really simple question, but why is nature good for us? And, and what kind of activities, that, you know, what kind of participation should we be prescribing? What, what sort of things should we be engaging in? Well, the number one thing is just getting out and about. I mean, even just going for a simple walk. Mm. Um, the, the big challenge that we have in terms of the evidence base is we know it's, it's a no brainer in terms of physical health. Of course, getting out and physically being active is healthy, but also just having better fresh air we know that obviously air quality is better the greener the space but the same applies also for blue spaces you get less pollution obviously because you've got you know less pollutants um, in those areas um, but even going in your local park that's good for you so we have now a whole range of biopsychosocial evidence so evidence from across the whole body so evidence across your immune system evidence across what's going on in your brain in terms of responding to the environment obviously things like increased heart rate um, all are beneficial for increased health um, the, the challenge is when it comes to what we might call social prescribing, which is something that I work on, which is a, a formal prescription from a referral, like a GP or another healthcare professional, to a non-clinical source of support in the community. And there are now lots of these. The NHS has invested heavily in these link workers, link workers, social prescribing link workers, is what we might call the dosage effect. So it's how much should we prescribe or how long? Um, I would say don't wait for a prescription. So we don't want to wait until people are unhealthy and unhappy before they present. What we want to do is encourage people to make those sorts of life changes, behavioral changes, the sooner the better. So we need to be embedding it in schools. We need to be embedding it in everybody's life. We need to be embedding it in older years, because again, we know for older people, keeping physically active as well as cognitively active is really important. Mm -hmm. And natural environments provide both of those. They provide cognitive stimulation. We have you know, amazing infrastructures within natural green spaces. We have complex 3D structures, of course, like our trees and our plant and the rest of the plants. We have a whole range of different colors. We have different smells. We have all these different sites and we have different sounds. And so that is cognitively stimulating, which we know is really important at all stages of life. So in terms of programmes, what we've seen from our own research and looking at amazing programmes that are run uh, across the UK and beyond, is that where you're combining uh, a whole range of physical activity, cognitive stimulation and then emotional activities. So, you know, something that's emotionally stimulating, you ideally you enjoy it, but you're really thinking about yourself and your own um, position within society, within the group, for example, are beneficial. So I've just seen some really lovely programmes and, and people that we've worked with um, for a few years now who just do amazing work. Um, there's organisations like the Wildlife Trust have been doing this for years, of course, but many other organisations and increasingly what we've been seeing is artists and individual creative practitioners drawing from the arts, particularly as COVID has struck and perhaps the, the resources that they might have used, like their local museum or the local arts centre or community centre, when they were closed, people then looking to nature for that inspiration. But what our research has shown is when you've got those three elements, 
the cognitive, the physical, the mental, the, the emotional, and it's done in a social way, we see really significant health benefits arising in terms of whatever outcome you might measure, whether it's psychological well-being or whether it's other physiological or physical health outcomes. So I would say just getting out is going to be good for you. But the more creative you can be in those outdoor activities. And I, for me, that's a hike is a, a creative activity. You've got to map your route. You've got to plan it. You've got to think about, you know, can I make it to that pub in time you know, before the sunset? And can I make it back? Um, you've got to do your map reading. You've got to navigate that complex landscape. Um, that is, I think, a creative activity. So I would say the more that we can do that, the better. Um, ideally, going uh, out, out and about on a daily basis is really what's needed to keep healthy and happy. Um, but the more you can get out in those green spaces, the better. That's really nice. And I'm, I'm really glad that you're you're here on, on the on the podcast because you're bringing the evidence to prove that we actually need more biophilic solutions, more bit more more design, more biophilic design actually embedded in urban planning, in urban design, and and it well, and town planning and all sorts of things, you know, where we can give everybody easy access to good quality, biodiverse green space. You know, um, and you said it's like it's the it's the it's the it's the, it's the visual references, it's the uh, the smells, the birds, the, the all these visual stimuli that that also um, you know do something for us, and also providing places where people can get out and be creative in, like you say, you know, actually just navigating the trees, navigating the park, deciding which 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 route you're going to go, or if you're going to go and sketch or draw or sit and read in those environments, sit under a tree or knit knit on a on a park bench or something. I, I think. As you say, sort of, you know, doing something and really enjoying that space and feeling the air on your skin. And and it's just like, yeah, it's just a complete holistic 360 kind of triple, triple, double whammy of goodness. <laughs> yeah, gardening as well. You know, we've, we've seen a big boost in gardening. The research we've been doing over COVID is, you know, how much garden, more gardening people have done. They've had the time. And, but of course, not everybody has access to the sorts of, you know, they don't have a garden space. Um, and so, yeah, again, from a design point of view, you know, the more community spaces we can have for gardening and we have seen some of those popping up mm. but um, it requires infrastructure it requires you know design it requires support and it does require investment um, but we've seen great examples of how you know pop-ups have appeared during covid you know communities getting together and they often only need tiny sums of money actually to get going but what they do need is some space to do it in and we know gardening is super creative all the planning and, and the, the creative task of, of planting and I'm not a great gardener, I only have a really, really tiny postage stamp garden, but I mostly have, you know, got loads of wildflowers in there to attract the pollinators, but um, it looks just amazing. And then the joy you get. Um, it's true. Yeah, exactly. It's also caring for something, isn't it? There's also that element of things, because then that engenders all sorts of empathy and, and stuff that's all that's just good for society. So, um, yeah. And that social cohesion, you know, we know that's so important, again, for community gardening or even just sharing, you know, lots of my neighbours around here. We only have tiny, tiny spaces at the back of our little houses, but they all use each other's and they all grow different things and then they share the stuff they've grown. And, you know, we live right in the middle of a big estate in, in King's Cross. So even if you've only got tiny spaces, it really is amazing what people can do. But it is so important to have that. And, you know, a lot of the sorts of regions and, and areas that we work in, I'm from Blackpool. Um, I grew up next to one of the biggest council estates in Blackpool. My sister still lives there. You know, these are the sorts of spaces where the very, very local brownfield sites 
nobody will go in them if they do they're full of needles and, and it's kind of dodgy so yeah. it's again it's there is you know there are one or two nice parks but it's again about having access and feeling like you've got the permission to go into these spaces and um, so it's about having access to quality spaces I think that's the key thing and also having those drivers within communities to support people who are not actively using them to go and use them and that's really where you need this sort of community activation um, and and that's really I think if you want to you know get to the root of tackling inequalities and you want to get to the root of tackling deprivation which is what our research is about you really do need to have look at these drivers and look at what the best ways to activate are at these very local levels because mm. if you're stuck in a you know in a high-rise flat in a very urban space um, and, the, and the nearest green space you know I'm from Blackpool getting to the sea is a bus ride away mm -hmm. um, and or it's a big you know it's a 40 minute walk I would do that walk but if you're not somebody who's been brought up doing that sort of level of walking then you're not suddenly going to start hiking 40 minutes across a you know longer main road to get to the seafront so actually a lot of the people who live in coastal areas for example they never go down to the seafront they're not using those wonderful blue spaces and that goes for the uh, for many many individuals who live in more rural areas, whether it's green spaces or blue spaces, they just don't access them. So there are lots of issues around accessibility that we need to address. There's also, I mean, some people can't even afford the bus fare, let's be honest. Absolutely. You know, really people don't really understand that either, do they? You know, that, you know, if, you're, if you've got a normal income, you know, you might be okay. You might think, oh, well, it's only a couple of quid. But I mean, it's surprising actually, in, in particularly in, in rural areas, the price of a bus fare is really quite a lot of money, isn't it? It really is prohibitive, absolutely. Yeah. So we've got to address all of those at multiple levels you know, yeah. when we're thinking about this activation. Absolutely. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, your, your research has, has proved, obviously, that um, there's over 75% of people are engaging more in nature, which is great. But obviously, we're seeing, like you've just mentioned, there's not everybody is, has access to these green spaces. I mean, even, and I, you know, I mean, I, I'm a great believer in whatever colour, creed, class, age you are, I think we should all have access. And, we, and obviously, we're singing from the same hymn sheet here, you know, which is, which is fantastic. Um, and um, I mean, there is a division in access, isn't there? I mean, it's, it's, it is quite... Um, uh, dramatic. I mean, it's, I think it's easy if like people who are probably listening to this might already be, you know, very sympathetic to the whole, you know, the biophilic design element and sort of bringing it into urban and they're like, oh yeah, well, you know, everybody can get out and do stuff. But as you just mentioned, it's, it's really difficult. Um, some people, yeah, some people just find it. And also, like you just said, are being, um, sort of being encouraged to go, to know that you, you're allowed to go to these places that, you know, it, that they are, they are for you, they are for everybody, they are for community. Um, I mean, accessibility is really key because, yeah, you might have a green space. You know, a lot of the people that live in my areas, they they will say that they know me and they know I'm off to the park. And they'll say to me, which is literally about 100 yards away from my house, it's tiny, but it's it's a really yeah. nice green space. It's got some really old trees, so it's, it, it's, it's a very creative space to be in. But they've never been in it, and that's because you know they don't feel safe in going there mm -hmm. um, and so they will deliberately not go through the park even though actually sometimes it's easier to walk through the park if you want to say get to a particular shop or a cafe yeah. or whatever mm -hmm. and so it is about the addressing these issues of accessibility and the permission and thinking about how when from a design point of view I guess how you can get different people from different segments of society um, give them the, the skills and the equipment um, and yeah, that might be money, but I think it's about investing in the right areas. So yeah, you hit the nail on the head with transport costs. 
Um, but also having what's been shown to be really important is having quality green space right on your doorstep and then making that space accessible. And it doesn't have to be a really huge space. We've seen that's been the, the big thing that we've seen in COVID is, yes, those people, more people have started going outdoors. And that's what that initially the one hour of exercise a day, you know, suddenly people when they had that hour, they really wanted to use it well. So we really saw a big difference then of people who perhaps had never been into their local park or very rarely suddenly using it a lot more but what we want to do is keep those trends going and escalate it to those people who are not currently uh, being able to access those spaces mm -hmm. i mean you mentioned obviously you said earlier on about social prescribing um and um and you obviously your work you know creative health partnerships and all these sort of unexpected collaborations as well you know with artists and scientists and and everybody in the museums and sort of cultural things i mean i, I just when you were talking about um people not feeling safe, like going, cutting through that park and stuff. I mean, it's also kind of creating spaces where there's a pathway or it's like there's an open area, but people can see. And, and the more people use it, the more it then becomes sort of, not community policed. I don't mean in a police in a big sort of P, I mean like the small P, just that everybody's looking out for each other. And then there is that sense of, you know, you're walking through it, you might not see anybody every, you know, for a whole day, just to nod to somebody or just to have that social interaction, I think is really important for us, as you just mentioned earlier as well about you know combating depression and, and before we spoke as before we started recording you mentioned um about these sort of multiple levels of like um health prescribing it's not just if you've got diabetics also you're given that one pill and you give this it's actually this is all these multiple levels can you can you just kind of talk about that again because the way you'd phrased it was just brilliant and i i want anybody who's listening to just really just take this on board because it was I think it's so important to realise the, the, the power of getting out in nature and doing something creative in nature. Yeah, well, for me, it's about thinking about health problems. And if we're trying to tackle health problems, then we're often talking about complex health problems. All of the, those sorts of problems you've talked about, like diabetes and depression, they are complex. They often don't arise in isolation. They're often related to each other. And so people present with complex health problems. And those are the people that I think benefit most. Everybody benefits. But I think when you're particularly dealing with complex health problems, this is where I really think a dose of nature, as people call it, and a dose of creativity has a massive impact because inherently they are operating on multiple levels. So people who have complex health problems, they might have a range of physiological problems. They might have issues with heart rate, blood pressure. They might have diabetes. They might be overweight, but they might also be experiencing mental health, ill health. Um, they might be facing unemployment. They might be facing financial problems. So they've got these multiple, what we would call biopsychosocial problems. And therefore we need a solution that tackles those problems, not in isolation, but in totality. And um, you know, pharmaceutical approaches, yes, are of course essential for attacking some of those issues at certain levels. But what they can't do is offer holistic. You know, we can't just take a pill to tackle all of those complex health problems I've just talked about. But you can if you are actively engaged in nature creatively on a regular basis. And that we know from multiple, multiple studies now from population level through to individual interventions, working with small groups of people. So, you know, for a comp series of complex health problems, you need a complex intervention. And what I would argue is that nature and creative interventions are complex inherently because of the fact that they're working on those three levels, the physical level, they're getting you more active physically, the cognitive level, we've seen that 
Um, if we look at brain studies, people are optimizing and, and working across the whole of the brain sphere. They're activating different cognitive elements. They're doing things like, for example, deep level thinking, deep level processing. The visual cortex is, of course, involved the auditory olfactory we've already talked about. So we know that the brain is operating on multiple levels, which we know is good for cognitive stimulation and cognitive functioning. And then, as we've talked about as well, the emotional. So there we're tackling those psychological challenges. Um, and so for me, it's sort of a no brainer, but what we really need to do, and this is, I guess, what mine and other researchers, our role is really about is understanding what kinds of evidence we need to support the changes we need to make in society to make what you and I and many of your listeners hopefully take for granted, which is obviously it's good for your health. So we need to be creating societies where it's not just giving us a prescription, but it's just part of our everyday life. And that's that people are enabled to use nature and access the outdoors in a creative way on a regular basis as part of their everyday life. So that's that's the sort of change that we need to see happening. Well, that, I miss it. that's really great. And I'm sort of leading on from that, I think. Um, it's again, people who are listening. And um, I mean, you, you talk about the research that you're doing and I mean, you've, you've developed um, and you're teaching a, a brand new, um, masters in arts and science at, at UCL and um, I mean I think it's like it's the first taught program of its kind in the world which is a complete revolutionary yeah great you know good on UCL my, my alma mater um, and um, I mean can you tell us a little bit about this interdisciplinary qualification um, I mean because I mean just the, just hearing you talk with passion about the arts and the you know the unification of arts and science and how we can support each other to make a better better world, better community, but, you know, better well-being for everybody and, and better health and, and all this kind of stuff, you know. Um, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about the, the MA um, SE, please? Yeah, well, it's the, as you say, it's the first type of qualification like this uh, in the world. We already have a bachelor's in arts and sciences, yeah. uh, which we've been running for ooh, seven or eight years. Um, and um, I really wanted to create a new master's um, around this whole area of, of um, what we call creative health. That's what the programme is called. That's the title of the programme. Um, but as we've talked about, it's so interdisciplinary. So I didn't want it to be an MA and it's not really just an MSc. So um, we approached UCL and said, we'd like to create a, a master's in arts and sciences. Um, and two years later, having gone through lots of different application forms, we, we got it approved. So our first master's um, uh, in arts and sciences will be in creative health. And that, that particular programme is really dedicated to everything I've just talked about. It's about creative approaches to thinking about health with a focus on inequalities. So what we really are interested in is students will be working together and with a whole range of different partners. We're so lucky to work with lots of different partners from really small community grassroots, voluntary run uh, organizations and charities through to much larger organizations. We have contributions from people across organizations like Arts Council and Natural England through to then the students go and do a green gym session with the Trust for Conservation Volunteers in Camden. Um, they do sessions in museums, they do sessions with artists, with yoga therapists. Um, and it's really just understanding uh, how we interlink the research that, that I've been talking about, um, that we've been doing and, and many others over the last 10, 20 years, along with those kind of policy and practice changes that we know need to happen. There's an amazing plethora of practice already happening out there. You know, there are literally, uh, we've been doing some studies over COVID of what organizations have been doing during that time. 
Um, and there's just been a huge uh, outburst pourings, particularly from the arts and creative sector, but also from, you know, we saw great offerings from places like the National Trust and the Wildlife Trust, the canals and waterways, you know, many green organisations. Um, offering amazing stuff to support people's well-being. So really our students will get a chance to learn about those different approaches, community-based approaches to supporting health. We call them creative health partnerships um, and it really is across the whole spectrum of arts, nature and creativity. Um, we have loads of contributions from those sorts of organisations but the best thing about it I think is that students will be doing a placement, um, a research dissertation with one of those organisations. So they might be working more at the policy end um, or they might be working more at the research end. They might be walking, working more at the participant end, working with an organisation and the audiences that they're reaching out to. The key thing is that the students will do a piece of research that is really mutually beneficial for that organisation, but also for that student to learn really what it's like to capture the sorts of evidence we need and to think about how, how it translates into policy and practice. So we hope it's a, a really exciting programme that students from all sorts of different backgrounds, we've got students coming from yeah, lots of different perspectives and different backgrounds, but with a key focus yet yeah, on that kind of how we can approach this from an interdisciplinary perspective, how we can draw from, from the arts, humanities, science and medicine to tackle these really complex problems with a focus yeah, on how particularly we can think about this from the perspective of, of tackling inequalities. Um, which I think is going to be a really key topic, as we've seen, that's come out of the pandemic. Everybody now, I think, has an understanding of what that word means and what it means for people who are living in, in areas of deprivation. Um, and so that's what we'll be tackling on the Masters in Creative Health. Well, I think that's brilliant. Um, I mean, I just I mean, I love the fact that it's also that they get to have placements in these pla in, in these in these different uh, groups. And so they have that they're, they're actually bringing all these different um, background um, knowledge and perspectives to make policy change because you know potentially there could be you know and just if you imagine that filtering through ultimately I mean that was one thing I wanted to ask you I mean what do you you know what was the purpose what do you hope would be the outcome of of like running this um this course as you've said what we want is people filtering out into all these areas um, of decision making and um whether that's for example you go on to become you know work in public health maybe you become a director of public health in a local authority you've got a really big chance then to make changes in a local level maybe you go on to work in an organization or in, in some cases set up your own organization that is uh, working at that interface of arts nature creativity maybe you're then going back into the health system um, some of our people are already working within inside the health systems maybe you're going back in there and you're then embedding that practice and spreading it out more so what we want is yeah the spreading of that good practice and and also of course on the research side we, we really we know that we've got big evidence gaps in some areas um, we know that we need to bring the evidence together more and I'm currently part of an academic collaborative and um, support at the National Academy for Social Prescribing, looking at the evidence base, we're doing a lot of uh, evidence reviews and evidence syntheses so that we can all understand, you know, what good evidence we have, because we have loads of great evidence, but also what are the gaps that we have and what's the best way to fill those gaps. Excellent, 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 excellent. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put a link. So if people are listening to the podcast. I encourage them to go to the journal of biophilicdesign.com 
look at this interview with, with Professor Helen Chatterjee and, um, and there'll be a link so people can go through to find out more about the MASE and also to register <laughs> um, if, they, if they'd like to. And um, yeah, no, so just, just so people listening, they know they can go to the journal byfilipdesign.com and, and find it there. Well, Helen, thanks so much for your time. Um, I, I ask everybody at the end of the podcast, and so regular listeners will know, um, if you can paint the world with this magic brush of biophilia, what would the world look like? Green. <laughs> we know what the neuroscience evidence suggests that the eye perceives more shades of green than any other. Um, and, and because I come from an evolutionary biology background, I, a lot of my work has been around primate evolution. Primates are the animals that have color vision. Um, part of the reason for that is, is early primates needed to see where, for example, fruiting trees were, they needed to be able to see in these complex 3D structures within trees where the, the, you know, the right coloured leaves were that they could eat and also the fruits, obviously, and the flowers. Um, so there's amazing colours perception that's happened in, in our evolution. So creating environments that are really, really grey and concrete and not green is really, really bad for our health. So greener and, yeah, with more, um, obviously, biodiversity rich environments so that everybody can even look out of the window like I'm doing now into my council estate, <laughs> I live in the middle of, um, and you can just see more and more green spaces and that those green spaces are really, really biodiversity rich um, so that everybody can look out of the window and see a biodiversity rich green space is my dream. Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.